Hello, welcome to Antiquitas, leaders and legends of the ancient world, with Cornell University professor Barry Strauss, military historian, expert in the ancient world, and best-selling author. During this podcast, Barry and his guests will share stories about fascinating and controversial people and events in history and myth. And now, Professor Barry Strauss. Welcome. Welcome back to Antiquitas, Leaders and Legends of the Ancient World. I'm Barry Strauss. I am the Bryce and Edith Bomar Professor in Humanistic Studies at Cornell University, where I teach history and classics. I'm also the Corliss Page Dean Visiting Fellow at Stanford's Hoover Institution. This season, we are looking at three legendary military theorists, Thucydides, Sun Tzu, and Clausewitz. Last time we spoke about Thucydides, the great historian and analyst of war in ancient Greece. Thucydides considered war to be a tragedy. Next time, we will look at a modern thinker who also appreciated the tragic sense of war, Karl von Clausewitz. Today, we turn to another ancient thinker, one who saw war as a sphere of risk and danger, Sun Tzu. Like Thucydides, Sun Tzu was a product of antiquity, but he came not from Greece, but from another great civilization, China. As a historian, I think that war is a matter both of theory and research. I kept the lessons of these three thinkers in mind as I wrote my most recent book, The War That Made the Roman Empire, Antony, Cleopatra, and Octavian at Actium. In fact, although I knew that none of the uh, principles in this war could possibly have been familiar with Sun Tzu, I couldn't help but seeing him and thinking of his ideas as I tried to reconstruct their thought process and trying to come up with a plan of waging and winning the war. Sun Tzu was just so insightful. And so I'm especially eager to share some information about him with you today. So let's begin with his biography, who he was, when he was, what he wrote, and why he matters. Like Homer, Sun Tzu is a man whose identity is mysterious and highly debated. His name is Sun Tzu or Sun Zi, and that means Master Sun, Master Sun. That's his professional name. His personal name was Sun Wu. And let me say at the outset that I do not speak Chinese. I don't speak Mandarin or Cantonese. I certainly don't know classical Chinese. I'm strictly an amateur. Forgive me on my pronunciation before we go any further. Sun Tzu served the state of Wu as a general and military strategist. Now, we're speaking about a period before the formation of the first Chinese empire. It's a time when the area that we now call China consisted of a series of smaller warring states. So Sun Tzu served the state of Wu near the end of what's called the spring and autumn period, in our terms, 770 to 476 BC. He is traditionally considered the author of the book we're going to speak about, but scholars think the book is more likely to have been written early in the next period, which is called the Warring States period, 475 to 221 BC. And like the so-called spring and autumn period, it is a period of conflict among a small number of Chinese states. In the Warring States period, 
China was divided into six or seven states struggling for mastery. So what is the subject we're going to talk about? Uh, it's a book called The Art of War, traditionally attributed to this man, Sun Tzu, who really existed and served the state of Wu, probably put together in a later period, and so probably more than one hand was involved in the final product. But as with Homer and the Iliad and the Odyssey, every scholar has his or her own opinion about the origins of this work and who really wrote it. In a way, it doesn't matter. What's wonderful is the product, the book, The Art of War. Unlike the Iliad or the Odyssey, it's not a long book. It's a small book. It's really quite short, and it's immensely pithy. And you can't really read it without a commentary explaining where it's coming from and what some of these pithy sayings actually mean. But it is well worth the effort of doing so. When we approach the art of war from a Western point of view, I think we'll immediately see that it gives a different view of war than we normally have. It's an introduction, in fact, to the difference between the Eastern and Western ways of looking at war. We talked about Thucydides, and Thucydides is not a treatise. It's a history. Sun Tzu is a treatise. Sun Tzu is an example, perhaps the earliest example, of strategic theory. And he is an indication that China developed strategic theory far, far before the West did. In the West, there was no real strategic theory until early modern times. In China, strategic theory is ancient. It goes back to about the 5th century BC. And that's a really interesting difference between the two ways of looking at war. There are certain things that stem from this difference between East and West. The Western view of war tends to be narrative, epic, heroic. There's an emphasis on the individual search for glory. The Eastern view of war tends to be analytical and pragmatic. In the West, war is glorious. In the East, war is distasteful. But just because it's distasteful, it doesn't mean that it wasn't considered to be important. It's considered to be very important, as we shall see. So Sun Tzu is well worth our while in order to get some insight into the Eastern way of war, the Eastern theory of war. And it's a book that's also important because it's been so influential. It's affected many modern thinkers about war. The most important of them, the most influential, was Mao Zedong, uh, the founder of communist China. Mao was a great student of the Chinese classics and of Sun Tzu. His own book on guerrilla warfare is deeply influenced by Sun Tzu. And the Chinese communists in their tactics, both against the Japanese and the nationalists, and indeed ever since they took power, have been influenced by Sun Tzu and his notions of war. Uh, in the West, there are a number of military theorists, more than I could name, who've been influenced by Sun Tzu. But it's also worth pointing out that Sun Tzu is a text that's often studied in business schools. He was very much in vogue in the 1980s, perhaps less foregrounded today, but still an influential thinker. So let's turn to what he has to say. And as I did with Thucydides, so today I want to go over 10 timeless thoughts from Sun Tzu to help us understand warfare, both historically and in the current day. So let's start with the first thought, and I'm going to quote a translation of Sun Tzu. He says, War is a vital matter of state. 
It is the field on which life or death is determined and the road that leads to either survival or ruin, and it must be examined with the greatest care. So Sun Tzu, even though he himself and the state he serves considered war to be distasteful, he nonetheless considered to be vital. As he says, it's a life or death matter, and it's the road that leads either to survival or ruin for a state. Now, admittedly, he lived in a warlike, a bellicose period. But honestly, when we look at human history, we rarely find a period that isn't bellicose. So his lesson is one that is, I think, immensely important for us to heed, that war is a vital matter of state. And we always must keep that in mind when we ask ourselves, well, what should our government be doing? What should the politics of our country be? We need to remember that war is vital. The second thing that Sun Tzu gives us is basic criteria for figuring out how a war is going to go and how you win. There are five of these basic criteria, and I want to tell you what the five are, and then I want to talk about two of them. So number one is the way, the way. Uh, Bear with me. I'll explain what I mean by that in a moment. Number two is climate. That's pretty clear as to what climate is and why it's important. Fighting in the winter is very different than fighting in the summer. Number three is terrain. And that, I think, is also pretty obvious why it's different to fight in a mountainous area than in a valley and why it's different to fight in a desert than in a rainforest. Number four is command. And we'll talk more about that. And number five is regulation, how you treat the troops, how the troops are ordered. And that goes along with command. So to look more closely, let's talk about the way. Now, the Chinese word for the way is the Tao. T-A-O is how it's spelled in English, and it's pronounced something like Tao. It's a fascinating and fundamental term. What Sun Tzu means by this, by the Tao, is it's the thing that brings the thinking of the people in line with their superiors. It is the trust that the people have in their superiors, the trust that a soldier has in his or her commander, and it's the trust that we as citizens might have in our leaders. If you have the Tao, if as a leader you have the Tao, you can send people to their death or let them live, and they will have no misgivings. That may sound harsh, but honestly, in an army, you have to be willing to put your life on the line, and you're not going to be willing to do it unless you trust your leaders. So the leaders must behave in a way that they have the support of their troops so that their troops believe that they have the Tao, that they can lead them on the way to victory. Along with this comes that other criterion that Sun Tzu emphasizes, and that is command. Command, he says, is a matter of wisdom, integrity, humanity, courage, and discipline. Now, if we unpack that, we'll see that command is a matter of character, wisdom, integrity, humanity, courage, discipline. These are not things that you can fake. These are things that you actually have to have and that you have to cultivate in order to be a successful commander. Sun Tzu talks about the expert commander, and he says the expert commander is calm and remote, correct and disciplined. 
But he's also got to be someone who has human qualities. Certainly, he needs to be calm. He shouldn't be emotional. And he needs to be correct and disciplined, but he must also have human qualities. Sun Tzu says, an expert commander knows how to treat the men wisely, and he always pays great attention to the state of his soldiers. He sums it up by saying, bring the troops together by treating them humanely and keep them in line with strict military discipline. Paradox. You have to treat the troops humanely, and yet you have to treat them with strict military discipline in order to keep them in line. Obviously, this is a very difficult task to carry out. And being a successful commander, being a successful leader of any kind, uh, is one of the hardest things that people can do. No wonder so few people want to have leadership positions. The third point that Sun Tzu makes is he says that warfare is the art of deceit. Warfare is the art of deceit. And he uses this word again, the Tao. Warfare is the Tao of deceit. We could translate it as warfare is the way of deceit. That may seem obvious, but honestly, it's, it's not. I think there is another way of looking at war, and it is a way that I suspect is more common in the West, and that is we tend to look at war as a clash between two military forces. They come on the field in one way or another, and they smash each other. That's not much of a matter of deceit. It's a matter of a direct way of warfare, what one of my colleagues has called the Western way of war. But Sun Tzu is talking about a different way of fighting. Let me quote what he says about what he advocates that a commander should do. When able, seem to be unable. When ready, seem unready. When nearby, seem far away and when far away, seem near. In other words, practice deception. There are plenty of examples of this in military history, just to mention one of them. Before D-Day, the Allies were concerned that the Germans would be waiting for them on the beach, that the Germans would know exactly where the invasion was going to come. And so they made a great effort to hide their plan, to trick the enemy, to fake the enemy into not being ready for them. They invented a ghost army in northern England. It was supposedly commanded by George Patton, who the Germans considered to be the Allies' best commander. There were fake tanks, cardboard tanks, all sorts of fake planes. Intelligence wasn't able in that period to see through it. And so the Germans really believed that there was this army in northern England, and Hitler was convinced that the Allies were going to strike in the area of Calais. In fact, the main blow came at Normandy. And as a result of this deception, the Germans weren't ready. They didn't have their tanks close to the landing ground. And even when the Allies landed on D-Day, Hitler was convinced that it was just a feint and that the real attack was not going to come in Normandy, but farther north in the area of Calais. He was successfully deceived, and the Allies had carried out, indeed, the way of war that Sun Tzu advocates, the art of deceit. Okay, the fourth point that Sun Tzu makes is there has never been a state that has benefited from an extended war. He says that to turn war to your best account, you've got to be aware of its evils. War is dangerous. 
because of this, Sun Tzu says that you should prize a quick victory and not a protracted engagement. Now, this is a very interesting maxim to keep in mind when we're looking at current events. Undoubtedly, all things being equal, it's true. War is dangerous. You never know what's going to come out once you begin fighting. And whenever possible, you should prize a quick victory rather than an extended war. And yet, there are many examples of extended wars in history. We need only think of World War I or World War II or more recently Vietnam or Afghanistan. Of course, Vietnam and Afghanistan didn't end so well for the United States. And the, the world wars didn't end so well for Germany. But there's currently a war in Ukraine. It has not been a matter of a quick victory. And many observers consider that it's a war that might last for a long time. So clearly there are leaders who believe that just because you can't have a quick victory, it doesn't mean you should cash in your chips and end the war without success. Clearly there are some leaders who believe that it's worth fighting an extended war, that the benefits outweigh the costs. So that's something we need to keep in mind when considering Sun Tzu's advice. How do you get to this point that he advocates? How do you get to having a quick victory rather than taking the risk of a long war? Well, his fifth point goes even further. He says, to win a hundred victories in a hundred battles is not the highest excellence. The highest excellence is to subdue the enemy's army without fighting at all. Whoa. Sun Tzu saying that the height of military excellence is not winning battles. Rather, it is winning without having to fight at all. This seems paradoxical or even impossible, but let's think about it for a little bit. Again, it comes from the space where Sun Tzu is saying that war is vital but it is to be avoided because it is dangerous and risky. And once you start, you're not sure you're going to win. Another aspect of this is that for Sun Tzu, there is not a red line between war and peace. Rather, war and peace are part of a continuum in which it is difficult to distinguish one from another. Both are part of the same ongoing conflict. War and peace are blurred. Conflict is permanent. Maybe it's a conflict that involves violence, what modern military theory calls kinetic warfare, and maybe it's a conflict that involves only political warfare or economic warfare or ideological warfare. It's all part of the same conflict, and in fact, it's better to fight it without having to go to battle. So let's give some examples. Uh, The first one is a mythical example, the Trojan horse. If you remember the myth, the Greeks had been fighting the Trojans for 10 years. For 10 years, the Greeks had tried to conquer the city of Troy, and they failed. And so instead, they resort to a trick. They pretend to be leaving. They pretend to be going home. They pack up their tents. They go onto their ships, and they pretend to sail away. In fact, They only sail away to a nearby island where their ships are uh, invisible to the Trojans. They leave behind a large wooden horse as an offering to the Trojans, to the god Poseidon, and a recognition that the Trojans were famous as horsemen. But as you know, as the myth goes, inside the horse, there was death and danger. There were Greek warriors 
who were hiding inside the horse. When the Trojans brought the horse into their city against the advice of some of their advisors, and they partied that night, the Greeks came out of the horse, opened the gates, gave a signal to the navy, which was waiting near a nearby island, and came back and took the city of Troy, killing its defenders in one terrible, bloody night. It's not quite an example of not having to fight at all, but it is a way of winning through deceit and avoiding direct battle. Another example, a more recent one, comes from years before the Second World War. In 1938, the Munich crisis, in which Nazi Germany threatened to invade Czechoslovakia unless they got their way through diplomacy. And indeed, they did get their way through diplomacy at the Munich Conference, the infamous Munich Conference in 1938, in which the Western leaders, led by Neville Chamberlain of England, gave to Hitler what he wanted. They gave him a bloodless victory in which the most defensible and important part of what is now the Czech Republic, it was then Czechoslovakia, this important territory, this mountainous territory on the border with Germany, was handed over to Hitler without a shot. It's also the area that contained the forts, protected Czechoslovakia, and the area with important munitions, arms, manufacturers. All of this handed over to Germany without a shot being fired. Hitler may not have known it, but he had achieved what Sun Tzu called the highest excellence, subduing the enemy without having to fight at all. Unfortunately for him, and lucky, I suppose, in a way for the rest of the world, he didn't stop there. The results, of course, were horrendous, the Second World War, but it did ultimately defeat Nazism. How much better it would have been if the West had made a stand rather than surrendering at Munich. But that's another story. Okay, let's go on to the sixth lesson from Sun Tzu. He says, the best military policy is to attack strategies. The next is to attack alliances. The next to attack soldiers. And the worst is to assault walled cities. Let's unpack this and see what he means. Well, Sun Tzu's idea of attacking the enemy's strategy is, again, a, a relatively bloodless way of making war and one that avoids some of the risks of going into battle. There are many examples of this in the Cold War. For example, when the Soviet Union supported Castro's Cuba, it attacked the United States without actually having to fire a shot. It was attacking the American strategy of making the Western Hemisphere a fortress defended by the Monroe Doctrine. And even though ultimately the Cuban Missile Crisis forced the Soviets to take a step back, and it was rather humiliating to Khrushchev, well, Castro's regime is still in power today, many, many decades later. The Monroe Doctrine is still not what it was. So this turned out to be, in the long term, a successful way of attacking the enemy's strategy. To turn the tables, by the 1980s, the U.S. was attacking the Soviet strategy, both by the deployment of Pershing missiles in West Germany and, in a more general sense, by racing ahead in the digital revolution and in the threatened deployment of SDI the so-called Star Wars, a missile defense that would shoot down any incoming missiles. The Soviets realized 
that they were completely outclassed, that their economy could simply not compete with what the Americans had done. Hence, we got glasnost and perestroika, and ultimately, the collapse of the Soviet Union. The Soviet generals told Gorbachev that he had to make peace with the West because the West had successfully undermined Soviet strategy. Today, as we see the rise of China, and some analysts are saying that China has the ability to leap ahead of the West in AI, artificial intelligence, and quantum computing. If that's actually the case, then that will be very bad news indeed for the West's ability to compete with China. It would be a way of uh, attacking the American strategy. Now, these are clearly very successful ways of winning a, a war, immensely impressive and successful when we see uh, the end of the Cold War. And we can understand why Sun Tzu says this is a much better way of winning a victory than actually fighting. Let's go to the example of attacking alliances. Here, I would point to the opening to China by the United States that took place under the Nixon administration. When Nixon and Henry Kissinger opened relations with Mao Zedong, Zhou Enlai, and China as a way of achieving two American goals. First, getting out of Vietnam gracefully, putting a graceful end to the Vietnam War without it leading to a complete American defeat. And second, undermining the Soviet Union. Now, it's true that ultimately the end of the Vietnam War for the United States was rather humiliating with the evacuation of Saigon in 1975. But if not for Watergate, Nixon would still have been in power, and he surely would have been able to prevent an utter defeat like that in Vietnam, at least in 1975. If the defeat came, it would have come after Nixon was out of office. In terms of undermining the USSR, yes, driving a wedge between the Soviets and the Chinese was very effective. Now, some might say that in the long term, this policy only underwrote the rise of China as another very serious, maybe even more serious adversary for the United States. But one might ask, is it really fair to talk about the long term? Don't statesmen have to look on a narrower time frame? So an example of attacking soldiers, there's so many examples of this in military history, but the one I'll put forth is the Battle of Gettysburg in July of 1863. This tremendous bloody clash in southern Pennsylvania of the armies of the Confederacy against the armies of the Union, a battle that was not decisive. It didn't end the Civil War, which lasted for nearly another two years, but it was a turning point. It meant that the South could no longer invade the North, uh, and it meant that Lee's reputation was tremendously tarnished. It did great damage to Southern manpower as well. And it gave Lincoln the opportunity to rally the North behind the continuation of the war, famously in the Gettysburg Address several months after the battle. But clearly, if either side could have done the damage to the other by attacking strategy or an alliance, they would have done so. The South was trying very hard to get allies that would really overturn things. The South was trying very hard to make an alliance with Britain or France. And if Lee had won at Gettysburg, it is conceivable that either or both of those countries would have entered the war on the side of Southern independence. That would have been disastrous for the Union if that had happened. So an immensely important battle, but 
it would have been so much better for the South that they'd been able to get these allies and get them without the loss of manpower at Gettysburg. Okay, finally, the example of attacking a walled city. Well, we don't wall our cities anymore nowadays, but we do defend them. And if we look at the Russian assault on Kyiv, the Ukrainian capital, in February of 2022, uh, that's a textbook case of what can go wrong when you try to attack a well-defended city. And this was an utter flop for the Russians, a failure, a humiliating one, and one that rallied Western support for the embattled Ukrainian regime, and one of the main reasons why the war was able to continue. Now let's go to the seventh point from Sun Tzu, the seventh thought. And this is another famous quotation from the master. So I'll read it. He who knows the enemy and himself will never in a hundred battles be at risk. He who does not know the enemy but knows himself will sometimes win and sometimes lose. And he who knows neither the enemy nor himself will be at risk in every battle. These are very, very wise words. So let's unpack these words. The third point is probably the most obvious one. He who knows neither the enemy nor himself will be at risk in every battle. Well, you might want to say, no kidding. If you don't uh, have a good assessment of your own strengths and weaknesses, nor the enemy's strengths and weaknesses, you don't have a chance of winning. How about he who does not know the enemy but knows himself will sometimes win and sometimes lose? Yes, if you have a good sense of who you are and what you can do and what your limitations are, then you have a possibility of winning. It calls to mind a statement from Clint Eastwood in one of his movies. A man's got to know his limitations. A man's got to know his limitations. A military, an army, a country has to know its limitations in order to have a realistic policy in war. But, and this is the third point, it's not enough. It's not enough. You don't only have to know about yourself. You have to know about the enemy. Because war is not just about you. It's about you and them. War is always a dialectic. There are always two parties in it. War's always a dance. Sun Tzu says, the business of waging war lies in carefully studying the designs of the enemy. This may seem simple, but it's not. Of course, it's a matter of military intelligence, and Sun Tzu devotes a fair amount of his book to talking about the importance of spies and learning about the enemy, trying to think about the other guy, trying to see to the other side of the hill trying to outsight the enemy and be prepared for what the enemy is going to do. But he says again and again just how important this is. War is not just about us. It's also about them. You have to know not only what might work on your part, but how the enemy might react. Uh, we'll, we'll end with an example of that in just a, a short while. But it's always essential in warfare to know how the enemy might react. And there are many, many examples of wars in which one state has started out with immense resources and very impressive military resources. It just fails to gauge the enemy's reaction. 
Um, we might look at the German attacks on France in either the First or Second World War. The Germans had a plan, but they underestimated the resolve and the strength with which the French would react, or in the case of the First World War, the degree to which the British would be willing to support the French. In the Second World War, they thoroughly underestimated the political skills of Churchill, the resolve of the British, and the strength of the Royal Navy. They thought that their own ability to win battles rapidly would allow them to win the war. They also underestimated Franklin Roosevelt and the threat of the United States getting into the war. As a result of that, we might say that the Germans knew themselves, but they didn't really know the enemy. They're a textbook case of what Sun Tzu was talking about and what he was saying, don't do this. Okay, the eighth point that Sun Tzu makes can be summed up in one word. It's the Chinese word, sure, I'm trying to pronounce it, and forgive me for my mistakes. In English, we spell it S-H-I-H, S-H-I-H, pronounced something like sure. This is a difficult word to translate, but it is absolutely essential to what Sun Tzu is talking about. There are a variety of translations. One of them is strategic advantage, strategic advantage. Another translation of sure is propensity, propensity. That's not a word that trips off the tongue in English. We don't use it every day, but it means the inclination or tendency to do something. Another translation is potential energy, potential energy. And another translation is the dynamics of a configuration. Now, I realize that none of these translations is all that helpful. What are we talking about? Well, let me give you two metaphors that Sun Tzu uses, and then let me give you an example. And I hope that those will enlighten us about this concept, because it's really an important one. Okay, first a quotation. The expert at battle seeks his victory from strategic advantage, from sure, and does not demand it from his men. He who exploits the strategic advantage, the sure, sends his men into battle like rolling logs and boulders. That the strategic advantage, the sure, of the expert commander in exploiting his men in battle can be likened to rolling round boulders down a steep ravine thousands of feet high. Well, that says something about his strategic advantage, his sure. So Sun Tzu says, think of an expert commander like someone who sends his men into battle like rolling logs and boulders down a hillside, down a steep ravine. You're getting power, you're getting momentum from the terrain, not from the force of your men, but you're using the terrain in a way that multiplies your force, that provides an advantage that has potential energy that you are exploiting. Another example that Sun Tzu gives is he says, think of an army like a crossbow. The power that you can exert from a crossbow is far beyond the power in your arms, far beyond the power in your body. It's the potential energy that's in the crossbow, that's in the weapon that you're exploiting more than the, the muscle power that's in your own body. So Sun Tzu's saying that when you go to war, and if you're going to have to fight a battle, you need to set things up so that you get 
force multipliers. You get advantages from things that are external to you. So let me give you an example. This is an example that's near and dear to my heart. I wrote a book about it. It comes from Greece and Persia in the 5th century BC. It comes from the Persian invasion of Greece and from what I think was the decisive battle of that confrontation, the Battle of Salamis in the year 480. This is one of the greatest clashes in naval history. It takes place between the Greek navy at Salamis and the Persian invasion navy. The Persians greatly outnumbered the Greeks. They had about twice as large a navy as the Greeks did. Their army outclassed the Greek army. When they invaded Greece, they were able to defeat a Greek force at Thermopylae in central Greece, and then to march on Athens and to take the Athenian territory and to burn the temples on the top of the Acropolis of Athens. And the smoke of these ruined temples could be seen from the Greek camp off the shore of Athens, between one and three miles away from the shore, where the Greeks were encamped. However, luckily for the Greeks, they had a leader who had thought through his shore, who had thought through his strategic advantage. That leader was Themistocles, Athens' greatest generals. Themistocles understood that if he could get the Persians to fight in a narrow space, they would not be able to deploy their advantage in numbers because you simply couldn't deploy that many ships in a narrow space. All he had to do was to convince them to fight in the narrows, to fight in the straits between Salamis and the mainland, within sight of the Acropolis of Athens. How he did so is a long story. It involved deception. He had to deceive the Persians, and he had to deceive the Greeks. He had to deceive the Greeks into thinking that he was ready to abandon the advance base at Salamis and to retreat further south, which he didn't want to do, both because it would have meant giving up his own city and because he couldn't carry out his plan of fighting the battle on his terms. And he deceived the Persians into thinking that he was ready to betray his navy and turn his ships over to the Persians. All they had to do was to deploy their navy in the Salamis Straits at night, and the next morning it would fall into their lap. The fruit of Themistocles' treachery would fall into their lap. It was a trick. It was Sunzuian deception at its finest because they're unable to redeploy further south because the Persians had cut off the straits and the Greeks had no intention of betraying their ships to the Persians. They were going to stand and fight. And so the battle took place exactly where Themistocles had wanted it to take place, in the narrows rather than the open sea. And this gave the advantage to the Greeks who had fewer ships and who knew the water better than their enemy. It was an absolute strategic advantage that took example of the potential energy in the site that he had chosen. And it led to a great Greek victory. It's an example of sure without even reading Sun Tzu. Okay, the ninth point that Sun Tzu makes is Xing. This is another term probably mispronounced. That's difficult to translate. But think of it as strategic positioning, as form, or as a mental freeze frame. Strategic positioning, form, or a mental freeze frame. Xing, well, I will give you another quote from Sun Tzu as for Xing. He says, the ultimate skill in taking up a strategic position, Xing, 
is to have no form, to have no shing. If your position is formless, if it has no shing, the most carefully concealed spies will not be able to get a look at it, and the wisest counselors will not be able to lay plans against it. Formlessness. Camouflage. Well, of course, armies from time immemorial have tried to use camouflage so that the enemy can't see them coming. But this is more relevant than ever today because there are two developments in warfare that allow the enemy to be almost formless. The first is drones, drone warfare. It's something that's almost impossible to defend against, very difficult to defend against, and that can allow an enemy to swarm his opponent and to come from many different positions at once, to be, as it were, formless. The second is AI, artificial intelligence. This raises all sorts of possibilities of fighting without humans ever going anywhere near the battle. It's a new sort of formlessness and a new threat that has the possibility of making warfare much more dangerous and much more effective. It's a terrible, brave new world that we're entering. The tenth and final lesson from Sun Tzu, another Chinese word, yin, according with the enemy. Again, this is not a great translation. Yin means according with the enemy. What this means is the ability to engage in surprise by understanding what the enemy is all about and adapting your own strategy, your own army to accord with the enemy. I'll read a quote from Sun Tzu. Generally in battle, use the straightforward to engage the enemy and the surprise to win the victory. The expert at delivering the surprise assault is as boundless as the heavens and earth and as inexhaustible as the rivers and the seas. Like the sun and the moon, he sets only to rise again. Like the four seasons, he passes only to return again. There are many examples of surprise in military history. I'll just mention three. One is the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor, December 7, 1941. The Japanese achieved complete surprise of the Americans, did enormous damage to the American fleet and its resources in Hawaii, and only didn't do better first because they made a mistake. They didn't destroy all of the American infrastructure on land in Hawaii. They left too much of it in place. And second, because they had a bit of bad luck. The American aircraft carriers weren't in Pearl Harbor that day. They were out on maneuvers. Had the Japanese been able to destroy those aircraft carriers, it would have given them quite a bit of a leg up in the war. It was very lucky for the Americans that those aircraft carriers were still usable. Uh, That reminds me, by the way, that the Americans had, before this, had attempted, whether they knew it or not, to follow Sun Tzu and attack the enemy strategy. How had they attacked the enemy's strategy? They had done so uh, by putting an embargo on the import of oil to Japan. If this had stood, the Japanese military would have been starved, and they wouldn't have been able to continue their war. They'd been engaged in war in China for quite some time in 1941, and they were also looking to expand the war elsewhere in Asia. The Japanese felt that they had no choice but to attack the Americans and to move southward to get the oil that was available in Southeast Asia. 
And they were able to do so in addition to their surprise in Hawaii, as if that wasn't bad enough. The next day, they were able also to use surprise to attack and destroy the American Air Force on the ground in the Philippines. This is a tremendous example of surprise. Two other examples come from the Arab-Israeli conflict. In 1967, the Israeli Air Force was able to achieve complete and total surprise and destroy the Egyptian Air Force on the ground with little or no opposition. And that laid the groundwork for the Israeli victory in the Six-Day War. In 1973, the Egyptians were able to cross the Suez Canal and take over most of the Israeli defensive positions there and to advance in Suez. Again, complete surprise, completely surprised the enemy who didn't see what was coming, nor did the Israelis see uh, that it would be a coordinated attack by the Syrians in the north. So again and again, surprise is an important part of military history. It's surprise that depends on intelligence, understanding the enemy, having the ability to operate behind enemy lines, being able to think like the enemy, knowing what you can do and what the enemy can do. It's an example of so many of the things that Sun Tzu talks about, of sure strategic advantage, Xing positioning, yin according with the enemy, and knowing the enemy and yourself. To sum up what Sun Tzu is talking about, he's talking about a very sophisticated way of war. It's a way of war that, on the one hand, depends on deceit, on surprise, on intelligence, on thinking. It's a way of war that doesn't look for glory. Rather, it looks for getting the job done. It's a way of war that also depends on having a commander and a government who has the Tao. That is to say, who has the trust of the soldiers and of the population. There has to be a seamless trust between the men and women and their commanders and between the citizenry, the population, and their leaders. And many a war has been lost uh, because of the absence or the loss of this trust, the loss of respect. And it involves, on the one hand, the commander being cold and rational and calm, and on the other hand, the commander being humane and treating the troops humanely. Finally, maybe the most paradoxical and interesting thing to me about Sun Tzu's way of war, it's a way of war that tries to avoid war. It reminds me of the Roman maxim, if you want peace, prepare war. If you want peace, prepare war. In other words, make the enemy think that you're so strong uh, that no one will want to mess with you. Sun Tzu's saying that, but he's saying something beyond that. He's saying... Engage in diplomacy, in maneuvers, in economic warfare, in ideological warfare, in every way of war short of kinetic warfare, so that the enemy really has no choice except to surrender, except to compromise without risking a battle. Because Sun Tzu also says that war is dangerous. It's vital, but it's dangerous, it's distasteful, it's dirty. We have more important things to do than fighting a battle. And because of that, we have to know how to do so. It it is a very intellectual way of war, a cold-blooded way of war. There's almost a part of me who wants to say it's unfair, but it's very effective. And it is a reminder that war is not a simple thing. It's... uh, Uh, Someone once said to me, ah, military history, it's such a puerile thing. It's such a childish thing. It's not. 
It's one of the most difficult and one of the most intellectual of all things. And Sun Tzu is an author who opens a window into this. He's worth reading and rereading. Well, thank you for joining me today, as always. Next time, we are going to zip ahead over a millennium to a Western author who I think is a worthy counterpart to Sun Tzu and who also is writing in the same vein as Thucydides, who sees war as tragic, but who also, like Sun Tzu, sees war as analytic and who for us today is absolutely essential to read if we want to understand war, if we want to understand history. That is Clausewitz, and we'll be looking at his famous book on war next time. Well, for today, I thank you for joining me. I urge you to read my most recent attempt to use some of the theories of these great thinkers to understand the war of the past. That's the war that made the Roman Empire, Antony, Cleopatra, and Octavian at Actium, a war that was a thinking person's war indeed, utterly fascinating, surprising, unpredictable in the way it turned out. For now, see you next time on Antiquitas. Lush Life.